Hey, I'm Stephen Hovatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10, 15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Good morning. Hope you're all well today. And uh, before you leave today, make sure that you get um, your card stamped so you get extra credit for being here on Daylight Savings Day. Um, I know it's ever a little bit more yawny today, perhaps. Uh, and sometimes that's just the way it be. And, uh, and we, we have to roll with that. Um, I, for one, am ready for the dreariness of winter to pass over us and am ready for, um, I'm ready to be complaining because it's too hot outside. I don't know if you, you feel that way. There's always something, right? There's always another side of the coin. We are at this point uh, looking towards the cross of Jesus. And we are aiming towards, uh, of course, in a few weeks, it will be the day that we celebrate Easter and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But it's important for us to not skip ahead. Okay? And to spend time, even as we uh, prepare ourselves, and even as on every given week we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in some sense, it is good for us to have time where we sit at the foot of the cross. It's good for us to have time where we dwell on the road that led Jesus to the cross, the way of the cross, a way that we too are called uh, to follow. Last week, we spent a little time thinking about the betrayal part of the story. It's one of those things that all of the Gospels focus on, the fact that Jesus was betrayed and in some sense by all of his disciples who would leave him. Some of them explicitly deny him. But one of his disciples would uh, take that proactive step of betraying him for a price. Matthew tells us that Judas had a moment where he realized this as a fault. And it says that after Jesus had died, okay, or before Jesus had died, but after he has uh, recognized it. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 and 4, it says it like this. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented. Brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. By betraying innocent blood. And it, then the story follows that they basically tell him, well, that's not our problem. And uh, the story goes on there is uh, Judas in despair throws his life away. 
But I want to hold on to that phrase because I think it well ushers us from the story of Jesus' betrayal into the next part of the way of the cross or the way to the cross, which Jesus is betrayed. And then all the Gospels also tell us that from that, Jesus goes to trial. And the trial readings for those of us who are uh, used to perhaps a, a more visual presentation of this, and we, we, we would very easily in our reading of the story skip from the time in the garden on to the time where Jesus endures the physical pain and the suffering of the cross. We think of the cross primarily as something that physically happens to Jesus. The Gospels always call us back to some of these other parts of it. Today, uh, we're talking about uh, the, the trials, but we already noticed the betrayal piece. Now we're going to talk about what happens in the trials. And then there's a dishonor and shame piece as well that happens in the story. And the Gospels seem to think that all of those parts, the betrayal, what happens in the trials and the dishonoring and the shaming of Jesus, all of those are every bit as important as the physical blows which he endures. But what is it that happens in this series of trial? Now, those who would be opposed to Jesus, whether they are the religious powers of his people, those who have that sort of uh, moral authority in the land, or whether it's the governing powers of the Roman authorities or the Hebrew civil powers that are there for the ruling over the period of the Jews. So whether we're talking about the Sanhedrin or Pilate or Herod, the story is that there's kind of a ping pong of Jesus here, that they keep knocking Jesus from one authority to the next, each of them desiring to see a certain kind of outcome. And yet, at every turn of the trial, we find them coming to the same conclusion that Judas had come to. He is innocent. Innocent. Now, you may think of these trials, if you come from the same sort of American context, that what is the, what is the most, you know, um, the highlighted event of any trial, is it not that moment in which the verdict is finally read? You know, if you think about the court, you guys like a good court drama. Apparently we do. There's a billion of them on TV at any given time. There are 45 different kinds of CSI on even right now while we're in church. Okay. Watch Law and Order, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, Perry Mason. Whatever it is, right? Isn't the most climactic part of the trial narrative when all the evidence has finally been presented and everything has been heard. And finally, somebody says, we find the defendant guilty or we find the defendant innocent. It's the reading of the verdict, right? Where somebody finally has to say whether or not they have perceived the innocent, the, uh, the, the, evidence correctly or incorrectly but there is the moment where they finally have to say this is how we find the defendant and it's a way of pronouncing language that then becomes part of that person's identity 
Kind of like we talk in, um, in, in, in my guild, uh, we talk about the way that language, sometimes saying something can kind of make it so. When you have a, a man and a woman and they're, they're, they're saying holy vows to each other, they're making promises to each other before God as they come to be married. And then there's a pronouncement at the end where you say, you know, they have made these vows, la, 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 la. And under the power of the state of Arkansas, or however you choose to do it, you say, I pronounce that they are husband and wife, right? And it's the pronouncement, it's the speaking of the words that then makes it so. The darker side of that, of course, is the pronouncement at the end of a trial. When someone says, this person, in the view of society now, in their official record, in, their pers- in the perspective of the state, <laughs> they are guilty, or they are innocent. And there is no rewriting of that identity except through some process of appeal and some process of some legal matter and unwinding that on to go. In the trial of Jesus, it happens quite differently. Turn with me into the Gospel of Mark in the 15th chapter. And let's read how this story progresses with Jesus. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, Will you say it so? And then the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply. And so that Peter was amazed. Now at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone uh, for whom they asked. And now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. And so the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to the custom, to his custom. And he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He says with mockery. For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. And Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man that you call the king of the Jews. And they shouted back, crucify him. Then Pilate asked them, and this is verse 14, Mark 15, verse 14. Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, 
release Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate here, as he is in most of the Gospels, is given words that are so ironic out of his mouth, right? He is in this interaction, and how ironic for this uh, Roman, uh, for this Roman administrator, this Roman bureaucrat, this Roman governor, to be speaking the words that are true in this story. And notice what he says. He says, what evil... Has he done? And it's a question that hangs in the air. Unanswered. This often happens with questions that nobody really wants to answer. They move on to the next phase. They skip over it altogether. They go back to what they want. They want him to be crucified. And the question of whether or not he's innocent doesn't matter to them. doesn't matter whether or not he's done evil crucify him as though Pilate had never asked the question to start with and by the way they're not the only crowd that has ever cried out for blood before the verdict was read. Notice what's missing in this trial. There is no climactic moment when the verdict, guilty or innocence, is finally declared. That whole part, we find the defendant innocent, we find the defendant guilty. That whole part, skipped over altogether. Now, Pilate clearly indicates that he thinks that Jesus has done no evil, that he is innocent. But instead, the crowd insists that he be killed anyway. And so we have a sentence without a verdict. We have a process that is supposed to bring about, that is supposed to safeguard justice. But that process is abandoned for the bloodthirsty desire of the people in power and the crowd that wishes to see blood too. Jesus is the innocent one. But here in this story. Not find justice. There are all kinds of problems with this. And if your theological warning alarms aren't going off yet. It's time to fire up the system. Sometimes we talk about this story as though it is a demonstration or sometimes this word is used satisfaction of the justice of God. The wrath of God was satisfied, right? 
But I don't know that I find much that's satisfactory in an innocent person being sentenced to death. Do you? Satisfactory seems like the least thing it is. And I don't think we're supposed to read this story. And then after it's read and Jesus is is innocent and we all know that and yet he's killed anyways. I don't think we're just supposed to nod along and say, yeah, that sounds about right. That's the way things are supposed to be. No, we read this story and with everything that is within us, we say no, 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 right? We don't say that's how it's supposed to be. We say, how can this be? This is not a story of justice. It's the story of injustice, which is called justice. And that's entirely different, isn't it? This is injustice wearing a mask, pretending to be something that it's not. This is important to the story of the cross. It's important for us to understand that the one who went to the cross was not a guilty man. That the one who went and was crucified and who endured that by his own choice did not deserve it in the least. That's the splinter, the troublesome part of the story, isn't it? What is it meant to show us? What is that part of the innocent suffering of Jesus meant to teach us? So many ways of thinking about that. But let's start here. Let's start with the fact that the injustice that Jesus endures forces us to open our eyes and recognize that there are many, many, many people in our world who suffer great injustice. Don't we know that it's so? And what we see in the cross of Jesus is that he willingly stands in solidarity with those who have suffered injustice. We talked last week how one of the greatest pains that a person can feel is that feeling of being betrayed. That part of the story where Jesus endures betrayal by his friends, it's like a terrible human feeling, right? Right there along with it is also that feeling of suffering when you feel like you don't Deserve it. Have you ever felt like that? I have. Now, it's one thing when somebody endures suffering in their, in, in, in their, it's being inflicted on them by somebody else. Like when somebody is doing wrong and we can very easily say, well, there's no injustice in that this person is treating this person wrong. But what about those other times when people suffer and they don't seem like they've done anything necessarily to deserve it? 
Not because some person is harming them, but it just seems like the universe is conspiring to bring about every bad thing to them. You know, you know that person? It's got a face for me today. I got, a, I got a message this morning when I first woke up. First thing I saw on my phone. A friend of mine um, a friend of mine that I've known for, I don't know, seven or eight years, uh, died early this morning. And it was one of those messages that when I found that there was a part of me, be honest, that was like, finally, her suffering is over. You ever had that feel? I know it's a weird feeling. You ever had that feeling? My friend Julie, and she was so she was so kind to so kind to us, so kind to uh, my kids. Um, over the last say four or five years, it was like everything that could go wrong with her body went wrong, step after step. Dealing with these terrible wounds that wouldn't heal in her legs. She had um, some, some heart issues that were giving her a problem. And then uh, on top of all that, um, she went, she lost her hearing. She became almost entirely deaf. And then like three weeks later, she went blind. <laughs> and, you know, I would go see her in her in, and be in her bedroom. And you I, like couldn't really communicate except for like to... Squeeze her hand. Try to figure out how to tell her. You know, if she got, if she got really close, she could tell who you were, right? Nobody did that to her. There wasn't somebody I could blame and say, oh, well, the suffering that she has, it's his fault or her fault. They're the ones that did this to her. It was even the system, right? It was just suffering that felt terribly unjust injustice has a face for me today it has a name and i bet you don't have to go too far into your memory to find a name too is that right if you can't find it in that personal experience good for you but i bet you can find it without too much searching on the news i bet you don't have to look too far into the neighborhood The story of the cross is not a story about how Jesus just magically transforms injustice to justice without taking any kind of other steps. Jesus comes and part of his mission is to experience in his body solidarity with every man, woman, and child that has ever suffered unjustly. It is the story of how Jesus feels it, he knows it in his body. He knows that things aren't right. He has been there with it. When we talked in the Advent season about when Jesus came to be born and he came to came into the earth we talked about that message 
We talked about this in a different side. And, you know, Matthew talks about that in a different side, right? That this child was come. He would, he would be God, that he would be present there. And what's the name? What's the name of Jesus that holds that? That God is with us. It's that Jesus is the Emmanuel, right? But it's not just when Jesus is born and given that name, Emmanuel, that he comes and is demonstrated to be present with us. It's not just that he comes and he takes on human flesh. The incarnation is not the last word of God's solidarity with us. It's also the cross. And the cross definitively says that Jesus isn't, didn't come just to be born and just enjoy the good parts of life. Jesus is with us even in the hardest part. Even in the most agonizing, heartbreaking part of what it means to be human. Jesus is with us. I couldn't fix everything that was wrong for my friend. But I could sit with her. And I could promise that Jesus was with her too. Sometimes that feels like it's not enough. In the cross, it's what we've got. That even in the lowest depths of human suffering, and even when that suffering is profoundly unjust, Jesus is with us. God is with us in the moment of the cross. The story of the cross is not just the story that Jesus is with us. Somehow, mysteriously, it's that he is with us and he is for us. That's one of the mysteries of the cross that the apostles are going to tease out later that Jesus himself alludes to in his ministry is that the cross it's not just a space where Jesus was with us in solidarity, but somehow, and the New Testament talks about this in about five different ways, okay? And they all raise more questions. But somehow, when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes there with us. And somehow, he also goes there for us. It's somehow what happens in the cross. Is the pledge that God will not abandon us. Even read from Romans 8 earlier today. And I appreciate you. Pulling up short. In Romans 8, when Paul is talking about the mystery of what it means to be in a space where what we hope for has not quite come true yet. Paul speaking about what it means to live as part of a creation that is itself longing for a moment where everything will be finally healed and redeemed, but it's not there yet. And 
I don't exactly remember which part of it that you read, Stephen. I couldn't tell you exactly which verses they were, right? Romans 8 also says that if God is for us, who can be against us? And the cross is where we understand, where we finally see. And the mystery between the cross and the resurrection that, that comes later is where we finally see that Jesus, that God, is definitively for us. That he is acting on our behalf to bring about our good, to bring about our life. There are lots of ways that... Um, people talk about the story of the cross. And there are aspects of the way that the uh, New Testament speaks about the cross, about uh, that it, the sacrifice and the substitution, there, there are pieces of that. And I don't understand how all that works. I am content to say that somehow it all works for our benefit. But I think we have to be careful to say we have, to, we have to be careful with recognizing who it is that does the cross. The story is not God crucifies Jesus. Can we be clear about that? There's a real important step that we have to, we have to say. It's not that God the Father because he was mad at people, decided to kill Jesus instead so that he could then be nice to people. You know what we would call that? Injustice. There's no way of bending that around and calling it justice. When an innocent person is killed, that ain't justice. Right? Instead, the way the story seems to go, that God sends, the Father sends the Son, and the, and the Father goes with the Son. And God offers himself to the suffering. God offers himself for the suffering endures the cross, receives its injustice, and then at the end says, let that be enough. Let that be enough. That God somehow in the injustice of the cross uses that as a way of justifying and making right the very people who carried out the injustice. Jesus is willing in the moment of the cross to look at those who are perpetrating the injustice on his body and says to them, Father, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. They may think they do. 
Perdão. Jesus dies, but not just randomly, not just because he's being victimized by the system at work there in first century Judah, but Jesus dies with willingness so that he can be fully present with us. And then somehow the mystery of the cross is that Jesus dies for us. And that that moment of profound injustice brings about something new for those who will not just see Jesus on the cross, but for those who are willing to walk the way of the cross with him. Because as we keep reminding ourselves in this study, the way of the cross is not just something that we see for our benefit. It is for us, but it is not just our benefit. It is also our calling. Just as we profoundly benefit from Jesus going to the cross to be with us and to be for us. God has called us in a community of his disciples who follow Jesus together, right? Follow Jesus together, even here. And so find ourselves able to look each other in the eye and able to meet our neighbors and say to each other and to the world in the name of Jesus. In the name of the crucified one who was betrayed and who was innocent. I will be with you. And even though it may not be pleasant, even though it may be hard, even though it may end up leaving me with scars, I will be with you and I will be for you. Isn't that what we say to each other? I'll be with you and I'll be for you. As a community of people that live by the way of the cross, they learn to sacrifice for each other and they learn to be present for each other in new and different ways. The invitation for all of us then Today, we're going to stand and sing in just a moment. The invitation is to become people who will follow Jesus in the way of solidarity. Who will follow Jesus on a way of sacrifice. And who will follow Jesus in a way that binds us together. So that we can say to each other, to our brothers and sisters, I will be with you and I'll be for you. And then also to the rest of the world. Jesus is with us. Jesus is for us. And so we will be that for you too. If you are in that space where you are looking for something to give meaning to your life, what meaning is there that is richer than what we find at the cross? 
And I, along with this church and along with our our community, along with God himself, I invite you. Come. Come to the cross. Take on the story of Jesus. Let it be your story. And may that story be a profound blessing to you and also to everyone you encounter. Let's stand and sing together.